Folks, it's Bryce here, host of the Thinking Leader podcast. Tonight, we're going into the archives to re-release an episode from back in 2021 that I recorded with wonderful author Barry O'Reilly about unlearning. We've never released this on YouTube before, so we're, we're putting it out again. I hope you enjoy it. It's as valid today as it was the day we recorded it. Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. My guest today is Barry O'Reilly, a business advisor, entrepreneur, and author of Unlearn, Let Go of Past Success to Achieve Extraordinary Results. Barry's also the co-author of the international bestseller, Lean Enterprise, How High-Performance Organizations Innovate at Scale. He's a speaker, writer, and contributor to The Economist, Strategy and Business Magazine, and the MIT Sloan Management Review. Barry's also a member of the faculty of Singularity University in San Francisco, the co-founder of ExecCamp, an entrepreneurial experience for executives, and the management consultancy, Antana. He's a busy guy, and his mission is to help purposeful, technology-led businesses innovate at scale. Barry, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Bryce. Thanks for inviting me on. Thank you for joining us. You know, I love this concept of unlearning, and I wonder if you could just explain what you mean by that to our listeners. Yeah, I, I think unlearning is it's kind of an interesting, provocative word, it seems, for many people. You know, often when I'm working with senior leaders and I say to them, you need to unlearn, the sort of, I get a puzzlement or, or almost people feel insulted sometimes when I say it to them. But, you know, what I've learned really is that, and this notion of unlearning, it's, it's not a moment in time. I actually consider it more like a system, you know, and, and the way I describe unlearning is it's a process of letting go or reframing and moving away from once useful mindsets and acquired behaviors that were effective in the past, but now limit your success. So it's not forgetting, removing or discarding knowledge or experience. It's the conscious act of letting go of outdated information and actively engaging in taking in new information to inform your decision making and action. And, you know, what I've learned from like coaching a lot of these uh, Fortune 500 leaders all over the world is when I was working with them, you know, I found that while learning new stuff was tough, what was even harder was for, for them to let go of their existing behavior, especially if it had made them successful in the past. And a lot of their feedback mechanisms are telling them they're doing the right things. They've been promoted to the upper echelons of these organizations. Their businesses are growing. They're and, you know, all their reports and valuations are going where they want. So the question is like, why change? What, what am I doing? Why would I need to unlearn? And I think really that's what I've discovered is really teaching them the system to recognize when their existing mindset or behavior is actually limiting their success and how they can adapt to changing circumstances, relearn and get the breakthroughs they're looking for. And has been a phenomenal system to teach people over the last five years. And I think, you know, as we'll probably dive into over the course of the, the show, you know, I've been working with executives at Capital One, Google, NASA, HSBC, like these massive organizations that are 
really innovating the way they work and inspiring their teams to do the same. So happy to share all those fun stories and experiences with you here today. That's great, Barry. When you talk about being a victim of your own success, I always think of this quote from Bill Gates that success is a poor teacher. Gates makes the point that we learn a lot more from our mistakes than we do from our successes. So how do you, when you're reaching out, when you're sitting across the table from the CEO of a large successful corporation, how do you make the case to them that they need to unlearn, that they need to forget some of what got them here, to paraphrase Marshall Goldsmith? How do you convince them that the things that they have learned, the things that they have done, may not serve them well in the future? Well, I think for most people, when you ask them, you know, like, can you think about a situation where, you know, a skill that you thought was key to your success suddenly became a limiting skill for you as you got promoted or your role changed or you did something differently. You know, and for most executives, they, they, they remember when they were individual contributors, maybe they were in a team and they were executing work and getting good results. And, and as a result of that, they sort of got promoted to be a manager, you know, and, and often if they kept doing the same things that they were doing, like making sure they got their work done and just trying to solve all the answers themselves, in a manager role, you know, that, that's actually limiting their success. The, the mission has now not changed for you to execute your work. It's now to make the environment where other people can execute their work and be successful. Like that's your success. So I think that, you know, they, they recognize these sort of transitions or I, I often call them sometimes on learning moments where, you know, there's a real sort of shock to the system where they realize the behavior that made them successful previously is now limiting their success. And I think that's where, you know, many people see parallels with Marshall's coaching around what got you here won't get you there, right? We have to evolve to the next challenge that we're facing. And sure, lots of the knowledge we accumulated from the previous role will help us, but relying on using all the same methods, all the same techniques, all the same thinking, all the same behavior, actually, it's not going to work like that. You know, you're going to have different challenges. You need to adapt your behavior and thinking to the challenge and sort of innovate yourself to be successful in the new market you're in. And I think that's the system I've really teached many of these leaders to not just change once, but continuously adapt. You know, there's shocks to the system, whether it's technology shocks. Um, you know, we always have public health and health shocks at the moment, changes in customer demand, and, you know, new technologies that change the way your product is delivered. There's, you know, there's continuous challenges we have to face. And you're not going to have all the skills you need all the time. And, and some of it requires letting go of things that made you successful in the past. And some of it is making space for new skills to come in that can make you successful as you relearn. And I think that system that I'm teaching people becomes more virtuous the more they practice it, when they deliberately practice it you know, they just accelerate further and faster ahead. And I think lots of the companies I'm working with now as they're even dealing with the COVID crisis is they have a system to cope with changing circumstances. And that's allowing them to have a less stressful, less anxious, more focused and directive steps that they're taking in this uncertainty. And I think their business and, and their people are reaping the rewards of that. That's really interesting. You know, Barry, you've mentioned some really great companies. I'd like to get a little more specific and I'm wondering if you can share with us how one of these companies was able to successfully unlearn. Yeah, so the, you know, the book is packed with examples from you know, companies like NASA. But I think I want to focus in a little bit on the one from Capital One, because I think that's a really unique 
perspective that their leadership team started with. Right at the very top, Rich Furbank, who's the CEO of Capital One, really recognized that a lot of companies focus on productivity, output-based, getting work done. And really, if you're going to create a high-performance culture, you don't focus on output, you focus on outcomes. And what he did was something that most people don't really do when you talk about trying to digitally transform your company. You know, when people say we're doing a digital transformation initiative, everyone's like, oh, we're building cloud stuff, we've got mobile apps, we're, we're just building, building, building. They're all outputs. Nobody's talking about the outcomes. And I think what was really profound about this flip that Rich was able to do is he started talking about outcomes. The way when people asked him about what does digital transformation look like at Capital One, you know, he had a very specific set of outcomes that he described. You know, he would say, we'll have an increased percentage of customer investment with the bank. We'll have an increase our rate of product innovation, but the percentage of new products we bring to market. And We'll have employees say that this is the best place that they can do the best work of their lives and have customer employee satisfaction figures that will jump by 30% in the next 12 months. You know, straight away when you've leaders who are actually defining success of a digital transformation in terms of outcomes, increasing percentages of customer wallet, your rate of innovation and customer and employee satisfaction, suddenly then everyone starts looking at what they're doing and saying, well, how does my work tie to impacting those outcomes? Or can I correlate my work to that? And one of the huge realizations they had was in in their technology department, you know, when they started looking at, well, if we need to increase the rate of product innovation by 50% in the next 24 months, you know, we're we're not going to do that with our current ways of working or our current technology. So they started experimenting with uh, AWS cloud infrastructure very, very early. And they realized that there was a whole talent transformation that had to happen. People had to learn new skills, um, like to understand how they could use cloud infrastructure to rapidly build and release software, to, to test with customers, gather analytics. So they couldn't like rely on dated approaches like looking at maturity models because cloud infrastructure was being created as, as a whole domain. So they were going to have to learn their way through that by do the work, learn what works, what doesn't, iterate. You know, so so people started self-selecting about that they wanted to grow. They wanted to learn these skills and they would take, you know, AWS's training courses and then they'd start training people internally because AWS releases features faster than any training courses can be created. So this notion of like certifying people to be good at a skill, again, it doesn't work anymore because the product innovation is faster than the training innovation. So you had people like actively trying to grow their skills and capability, understanding that from an organizational point of view, they've got to increase the customer investment with the bank, the rate of innovation, and it'd be the best place where they could do the best work of their lives. And, and that's instantiated where they're funded and supported to grow their own capabilities by building these new technologies with new technologies and improving and coaching other people internally. You know, they're looking at the rate of new products they bring to market and how fast they're doing it and what satisfaction that's driving for customers. Because if it is, customers will keep buying more of their products and increasing their sort of investment spend with them. You know, and literally, I think, you know, Capital One now has their highest percentage of any financial services company with their infrastructure in the cloud. 
Um, all of their customer-facing apps are rapidly releasing software in a huge frequency. And this is a, this is a highly regulated environment. Like their Amazon's golden case study that they talk to people about trying to change the way they do product innovation. And, you know, all of that has come from leadership at the top recognizing that they need to define outcomes, not output as measures of success. And that working its way down the whole organization and you've got you know, 55,000 people living and breathing these, these measures of success. And it's been transformational for them as a business. Barry, I think this is such an important issue you raise because, you know, there's a lot of times, particularly when companies get fixated on some shiny new process, like you get Scrum or Agile or whatever, people become focused on the process, not the practice. And I really think it's important to make a distinction between those two things. So to me, a process is a set of steps. It's, a, it's you begin with step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, step six. The problem with a process is it becomes a defined event. We are going to do this process now. And it often becomes reduced to a series of checkboxes. Did we do step one? Yes, check. Did we do step two? Check. Did we do step three? Check. And over time, the means becomes the end. A practice, on the other hand, is something that you just do because it benefits you, because it leads to a desired outcome over time. It's a skill that you've internalized, that you've learned, and it's now just become part of how you do things all the time. And so practices are much more focused on outcomes, on what we're trying to achieve here, and then having the skills, having the abilities, having the knowledge, and having the confidence that comes from learning those things to be able to deliver the desired outcomes. It's a massive problem though, right? It's like you have these huge consultancies going into organizations and charging them for tick box transformation, mm -hmm. for rolling out these massive methodologies. And people become, as you say, more fixated on the framework rather than the fluidity of the practices meant to deliver them and understanding which practices they should use or not use or learn and unlearn or adapt to their circumstances, right? Success is, have I completed the framework? And actually, it really removes people from owning the outcome because there's safety. No one will shout at me if I just follow the four steps that you told me to do. So regardless of what results we get, I followed the framework, and so you're actually making it harder for people to think for themselves. You're forcing them to be compliant rather than creative. And I think that's a huge issue that so many organizations are failing at digitally transforming. And, you know, they're, they're feeling that even more through the COVID situation because they've removed the ability for people to think and act for themselves. They've just enforced a way of following the rules doing what you're told? Have you completed all your 12 tasks we assigned you? They're not connected to customer outcomes. They don't know the behavior that they're trying to drive or change in their customers or users. And they, they're not connected to it. And I think that's a huge issue for so many people. And, you know, one of the other case studies I published recently was with Tesco's bank in the UK. And they've actually seen the crisis as a way to accelerate their transformation in many ways, you know, the need to respond, the clarity about what the problem was, the customers were suffering, not being able to access their bank accounts, do financial transactions in person, having to move everything online. You know, like they stood up remote customer service centers in three and a half weeks, which is, which is almost unheard of. Yeah, and um, in the UK, you have this idea of tap to pay. It's a bit like Apple Pay here in North America, where rather than handling cash, you can use your phone to pay for 
goods. And in the UK, there's a small threshold. It used to be like maybe you know, 20 pounds. So you could do small financial transactions at a high frequency with like minimum signage. You know, and, and there's lots of regulation around that. They got that up to like 50, 60 pounds really quickly because that's what the average price of someone doing a, trying to do a weekly shop is. So they didn't have to touch cash. They felt safer, the better customer experience in a time like COVID. So they've just had this unleash. The way they would describe it is that the crisis has actually unshackled many teams that have this latent capability, but it's been controlled out of their organization because you can't do that. Stick with the status quo, follow the rule books. And, and they've actually seen more creativity, more innovation during this time of crisis because people have been unshackled. They've been trusted to take ownership of the problem, clear on the outcomes of helping customers be happier, safer, get access to their financial funds. And as a result, everybody's winning. And it's, it's a sort of the executives now are really only asking, how do we bottle this? It's not a case of we need to do something different. They're actually seeing for the first time the benefits of a lot of these methods. And, and it's, a, it's amazing to see. Well, you've raised a really important point here, Barry, which is I, I think that you should never miss the opportunity of a crisis. A crisis is really, if you look at it as an opportunity, can be a great catalyst for change. And I think that the example you just gave is a wonderful one of a company that recognized that this was not just something to overcome, but an opportunity, a springboard that they could use to advance their business in ways that will have lasting and positive impacts even after the present pandemic is hopefully contained and behind us. That's often hard for leaders to do though, right? And I think this again gets to the unlearning thing is a lot of times leaders just get into either one of two modes, which is let's wait and see what happens, uh, which is how you kind of become a deer in the headlights or firefighting mode, reacting to the crisis and, and just kind of running around dealing with the immediate effects of it rather than thinking about what this means for the long term. And I think back to one of my favorite stories from Alan Mulally when he was CEO for Motor Company, when they made the decision during the, global the last global financial crisis to not take a bailout from the federal government, his chief financial officer said, that's great, but obviously we need to freeze spending on new products. We need to freeze all the initiatives you've been pursuing to revitalize the company. And Alan's response was, no, we actually need to accelerate it because if we move forward more quickly now, when everyone else is scrambling to figure out how to just get through this, then we will have made up for so many of the years that we fell behind in the past, we will leap ahead of the competition. And that is in many ways what, what they succeeded in doing. But it requires a mindset from senior leadership to see this as an opportunity, not as, as just a hurdle to overcome, right? This is one of the key observations, but also messages I've had for many of the groups I'm working with. You know, when, when crisis strikes, you'll often hear that notion of we need to scale back, we need to stop, we need to pause, wait and see what happens. You know, it's our instinctive reaction when you're facing uncertainty is to hit the brakes. In fact, like most organizations uh, have a vast array of processes in place designed specifically to stop activity at the first sign of the unknown or risk or uncertainty. You know, stopping is the safest approach or so we're told. But I always say playing it safe is actually risky, especially in the times when the world around you is experiencing massive ra rapid change. You know, stopping activities, saying no, shutting down is not the way to su succeed in an uncertain environment. Uh, it's actually the way to struggle, stagnate, or even fall further behind. 
Um, and to your point and Alan's obviously behavior as well, counterintuitively, you've got to learn your way through it. And actually the capability you build by learning your way through uncertainty, by taking these sort of small steps to figure out what works, what doesn't work, how, how is the environment changing, what's working for you or not, is an amazing capability to build in your organization. It's not the skill in one specific domain, it's the skill to adapt to changing circumstances. You know, and like I said, I've seen this massively uh, at the, the case study I shared with Tesco's bank. You know, I, I sit on a number of advisory councils for executive leadership teams. And um, we've been running these throughout COVID uh, in collaboration with companies like Slack and Box, who are companies who really, you know, have been real winners or designed to cope with the sort of resilience you need of both of remote collaboration in times like these. And, you know, I've been working with CIO leadership executive groups where we've had, you know, 75 people on sessions where I've been talking them through these types of behaviors they need to lean into. Like the, the unlearn is to stop freeze, wait, and see what happens. The relearn is actually to think big and start small and make these small steps into the sort of unknown and understand what's going to work for you and what isn't. And these are the organizations that are actually going to succeed through the crisis. They're going to learn what their business is really about. They're going to stay connected to their customers, but they're going to build this capability to rapidly adapt to changing circumstances. You know, and I think you know, we've talked a little bit about this ourselves is it's not the sort of first wave you have to be worried about. It's the second wave and the third wave and the fourth wave after that. It's, it's not the first shock to your, your organization that's a technology disruption or a customer change or, or a public health issue. It's, it's, these things are just going to happen more frequently. You know, COVID is an accelerant. It, it's not a disruption. And we're, we're just going to keep facing these sorts of challenges. And, and you need to build that capability in your company to to continuously adapt to changing circumstances. And, and if you can, you know, you've got a chance of being not only worry about, you'll actually thrive. Well, exactly. And, you know, even before COVID, Barry, I mean, we talk a lot with our clients about this concept of, of living in a VUCA world, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. That described the world for most businesses pre-COVID because of changes in, in technology, changes in geopolitics changes in just the advance of new models of working together and new competitors emerging. COVID has, as you put it, acted as an accelerant on that, but it hasn't changed the underlying dynamic that we live in a very complex and rapidly changing world in which it's very difficult, if not impossible, to sit and plot out a long-term strategy and then press the execute, press the return button and think you can walk away from that and go play a few rounds of golf and check back in next month and see how things are going. Are you familiar with Dr. David Snowden's uh, Kniffen framework? Yeah, I know Dave pretty well, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a classic example and really validates one of his models, which is that when you deal with complex problems, the approach that he suggests for that is to probe, sense, and react, You know, which is really, like you say, it's stop, but stop so that you can gather information and assess and learn differently from that and then figure out what the response is. But it's more of a cycle. It's not, a, it's not step one, step two, step three. It's, it's, it's a circle that continues. And I think that's really key to navigating through the world that we're in now and that we're going to be into for the foreseeable future. Absolutely. And, and I think another really interesting part about Dave's model, 
where he talks about the literally the chaos domain, all you can do in chaos is act because you need to act to get information to even understand, are you in chaos or are you in a complicated or a complex environment, right? Standing still gives you no information. You're not learning anything. And I think this is sort of one of the most important counterintuitive ideas. When it's highly complex, when it's high chaos, your best course of action is to act and learn your way through it. You can't freeze, sit there, wait and see what happens because you're not actually learning anything. You're just sort of observing what's happening and you're not seeing the changes or experiencing them for yourself or knowing what you should be doing. So I think, again, it's, it's one of the most fundamental counterintuitive notions that organizations have to learn is it's better to learn your way through than try and hope that you can figure out by following what other people are doing. If you can become a learning organization, if you can cultivate this learning mindset then that will stand you in good stead, you know, as you mentioned, not just in dealing with the present crisis that we're in right now, but moving forward as an organization. It's something that it's the gift that keeps on giving because I think a lot of these things become kind of mental muscle memory too. The more you train your mind to work like this, the easier it becomes to do and the more natural it becomes. And it will make you a more agile leader, and I mean agile, not just in, in the, the kind of proprietary sense of agile, but just quicker on your feet and it'll also make you more adaptive. And those things will make you more resilient. And I think what every leader in every organization wants right now and sees the need for is resiliency. And absolutely. You know, I think the, these things are, they go hand in hand, right? You know, responsiveness and resilience are key characteristics to dealing with complexity. And the world is only going to get more complex and your business may get more complex and the amount of people you have to work with and collaborate with gets more complex. And I think having those capabilities are, are really, really important for organizations to be successful. So if you are a successful organization, if you are a successful leader, what are some, some signs that you need to think about unlearning some of the things that you've relied on? Yeah, well, the, there's a sort of series of questions I ask people, especially, you know, often when I tell them they need to unlearn, if they haven't kicked me out of their office by then, I know you <laughs> stick around for a little bit. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, think about these sort of questions. Where are you not achieving the outcomes you desire? Or maybe where are you not living up to the expectations that you have for yourself? And maybe there are situations that you're struggling to resolve or, or, or challenge that you're actually avoiding altogether because you just don't even, can't even think about it. Or you've tried everything you can think of and you're still not getting the breakthrough that you're aiming for. You know, often when I ask any leader these types of questions, you know, not living up to the outcomes they're aiming for, not meeting their expectations, situations they're struggling to or avoiding altogether, tried everything they can think of and still can't get a breakthrough. You know, it's not a matter of just one thing come up. It's like, can I stop them writing a list of things? Because, you know, they, they start to realize they're blocked in many different sort of situations. And that's a signal, right? Like if your existing behavior was working, you wouldn't have challenges. You'd just be sailing right through these challenges. And yet many people are coming up against challenges because their existing thinking or behavior is not able to surmount that challenge. So that's a signal that you need to adapt. It's not necessarily that the problem needs to change. It, you need to change to solve the problem. And I think that's a huge aha moment for a lot of these leaders. And um, again, once you can sort of diagnose this, these situations where your existing behavior is actually limiting your performance, 
then it's really just this idea of like identifying ways you'll relearn, like get outside your comfort zone, try new skills that are, are not natural to you. Because if your natural behavior was working, again, you wouldn't have these problems. So I think once I start to, to sort of make this system visible to people, and the lights go on pretty quickly, especially for senior leaders, because they see that I'm showing them a system that they can, they can self-diagnose, that, they, that then they can design the steps and actions they want to take and then gather the information they learn from taking that action to see what's working or not. And I think, um, you know, most of the best leaders I've ever worked with is they, they are natural experimenters. They want to get in good information to make great decisions. And, and they realize to get information, they have to take action, they have to change, they have to adapt, they have to try things. And really, I think the system just brings that to life for them. And you know, it's, it's been amazing to see the results that people have had once they start to apply it. You know, that is obviously very powerful when you have a leader who's self-aware enough to be able to have that conversation, to be able to look at themselves, to look introspectively, and as you put it, to self-diagnose their need for different ways of thinking or to at least entertain different ways of thinking. What do you do if you're one level down in an organization? So, you know, for instance, a lot of times we work with, with folks who say, this is great, you know, we love this new way of thinking. It's exactly what our organization needs. We're terrified that as soon as this reaches the top of the house, though, it's all going to get pushed back down, you know, by our, our C-suite folks who are resistant to anything that's radically new or different. That's particularly a big problem in large organizations. How do you deal with that when you're not at the top of the house? Yeah, so I think one of the mantras of the book is to think big, start small and learn fast. And you know, you need to think big about trying to change the whole way your organization operates in, in pursuit of higher performance. Like you, you do need to think big about that. But the starting small part is really important because it's action you can take. You know, like I, I think role modeling change is one of the most important factors and influencers about making change happen. You know, often people say that we, we can't do anything if the leaders won't let us do it or somebody else is stopping us or that team will let us down. But people have way more power than they realize. And I think when you sort of show up and sort of say, well, look, I think we need to change the culture or the way we work here. It's a big ask. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to start small. I'm going to start doing one thing differently every day. I'm going to try and share with my peers that we need to unlearn the way we make decisions or even the more important, the way I make decisions. And, you know, and I'm going to try and make decisions in a different way this week. I'm going to be more collaborative or maybe I'm going to be more direct or, or maybe I'm going to try and make sure I get contrary opinions before I decide, or maybe I'll wait till I hear everyone else's opinion in the team before I make the decision. These are all tiny little changes people can make on a daily, hourly basis um, that is role modeling new behavior, is recognizing that maybe I need to change the way I make a decision. I'll make a small little tweak, but, but it can actually have a profound ripple or network effect in companies because, you know, once people see you trying to change your behavior and then they see some of the evidence of the results of change that, you know, the team are happier, that you're making better decisions, the product is growing, the process is changing, you know, suddenly they'll, they'll want to replicate what you're doing. And, you know, that's how movements start. That's how you start to, you know, be a lightning rod for changes. Role model it in yourself, start small, make a couple of tweaks, you know, bring people in as, and that, that builds the momentum where the leadership team are then looking going, 
you know, what, what is this group doing differently? They seem to be happier. They seem to be shipping more. They seem to be more, you know, more people engaged in their work. Like what's happening there? We need to do more of that. And, you know, that's where you can bring them into the equation. But one of my favorite examples of this then, because, you know, we often say that the execs are holding us back, but one of my favorite stories from Capital One is, you know, one of the first retrospectives I did with the uh, leadership team at the card business is, you know, they, they were literally re- reflecting on the work we'd been doing together for about a week. And, you know, they were going through their weekly reporting dashboards. And, you know, the, the CEO of the, of the card business literally looked at the report and went, everything on here is an output. We're just measuring on time, on budget, on scope, task complete. There's no outcomes here. We need to shift to be outcome-based if we're going to be successful based on where, you know, Rich Fairbank, the, the, the company entire CEO wants to go. You know, and, and he didn't sort of just stop there in his meeting. He, he went back to his desk and wrote his sort of uh, bulletin update for the week and was like, hey, hey, everybody, you know, we're all trying to transform the way we work. My team's trying to work in a more agile way. And this week I recognized that we're, we're too output-based. We need to become more outcome-based. So this is how we're trying to change. It's difficult, it's hard, but it was a great realization for us. And he sent that email to 50,000 people. So this creates this agency in, in the company. And that's inspiring, right? People were stopping me in the corridor going, you know, we've never got emails like this before. What the hell's going on up there? And it's amazing. There's no two ways about it, right? And so one person can have a profound effect, whether you're the CEO or you're on the shop floor. And I think, you know, don't, don't discount the agency you can have. And, and if you're worried, just start small, you know, do one little thing every day and, and see the impact it can have. I love that idea. You know, it's really interesting. When the U.S. Army stood up their red teaming leadership program and started training red teams, one of the first things that they got pushback from, from the first kind of few cohorts that graduated from the school, was this idea that, you know, we love these tools, we love these techniques, we want to challenge the Army's assumptions, we want to think about how plans could fail, we want to look at things from other perspectives, but the Army doesn't. The Army is a bureaucratic organization. When we go back to our commands and we try to tell the generals we work for that we need to challenge our assumptions or that we challenged our assumptions and this is what we came up with, they're going to push back. They're going to tell us to shut up. And, and they found that people were actually simultaneously getting really energized and enthusiastic learning these things, but they were also getting demoralized thinking about how they were going to take them back to their commands. And so they put some organizational psychologists to work on this problem. And they, they came back with this idea that the army calls my 15%. And it's very much aligned with what you're talking about, Barry, I think, which is the idea is that they looked, they said, you know, wherever you are in a large organization, whether it's the U.S. Army or whether it's a, a large company, there is at least 15% of your job that you have some measure of control over, that you have some ability to influence positively or negatively. So if you don't have immediate buy-in for senior leadership, for the type of changes that you're trying to make. Focus on my 15%, focus on your 15%, which you know to translate into, into how you put it, to start small and, and to think about the things that you could do individually or on your team to make the change that you wanna see happen at a broader level. They found that when people went back after they graduated from the program, even if they went back and found that their commanding officers were not really bought into this concept of red teaming, that if they used it on this narrow framework of my 15%, 
that people would say, well, how did you do that? Why were you able to get this result that we weren't able to get? Then they gave them an opportunity to talk about, well, I use this tool, I use this technique. And they say, well, we could use that on our next plan. Can you come talk to us about it? And so that's how they were able to kind of slowly turn a large ship around. And I think that that's a really powerful concept. I think it's great. I do too. And I, I really also think this whole concept of unlearning is great. And it's such an important thing to challenge leaders to think differently in this way. So if you're a leader, if you're listening to this and you're saying to yourself, I get it, maybe what I know is only part of the puzzle. Maybe there's a better way. What's some advice that you would give to that leader, to that person about how to start this unlearning process? Well, my little method that I always share with people is think about those questions that I just asked about recognizing where you might need to unlearn. So, you know, where you're not living up to the outcomes you're aiming for, you're not hitting your expectations, situations you're struggling with or avoiding, or you've tried everything and you can't get a breakthrough, right? Ask yourself those questions, plot down a few answers, and then, you know, find someone who you know, someone you trust, you know, maybe someone in your team or collaborator, you know, but someone who works with you and pick one of those challenges and ask them on a scale of one to 10, how well do they think you're doing with that challenge? And maybe they know you and you trust you and they give you a three and you're going to say, thanks. You know, um, you're going to ask them how you, how you can get just half a point better in the next week. You know, what kind of behaviors could you try just to get half a point better? And they're going to give you hopefully a couple of ideas. And I'd encourage you to pick the one that feels a bit uncomfortable, a bit unnatural, and just try it for a week. Try it even for a day and then check back in with that person. You know, and ask them, you know, you, know, you, you gave me some great feedback and some ideas. I'm, I'm going to, I tried the behavior you reckoned. How do you think I'm getting on now? And then, you know, maybe they'll be like, actually, you're a six now. Like, Brilliant. How can I get half a point better next week? And I guarantee if you can get into that type of pattern, whether it's with your teams, whether it's with your peers, whether it's with people at home, you'll be amazed by the power of compounding effects on that. And change won't seem so scary to your point earlier because you'll be in the habit of changing. You'll be comfortable with change. You'll actually be seeking ways to improve for challenges that you've got. And, and that's a super powerful skill to have for the future. And I think that would be my little method to get people started small, end up with really big results. That's great advice, Barry. Barry, how can people learn more about unlearning and about what you do? Well, the book is available in all uh, good bookstores and the internet, it's, it's out there. I've got a podcast myself, the Unlearn Podcast, where I have people on to share uh, inside organizations I'm working with, their experiences of unlearning. And then if you can go to my website, barryoreilly.com, and, and I'm on social media, either on LinkedIn and on Twitter with that handle. So always keen to hear about people's unlearning stories, uh, any experiences they have applying the methods. And um, yeah, it's always a pleasure to to learn from other people and unlearn too. Great. And we'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Barry. Thanks for sharing your stories too, Bryce. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode there. You'll also find a link to our free assessment. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.